It's Arjun. With a video update this week, I wanted to extend the discussion on last week's detailed post that went through the questions of, is there a trade-off between returns and growth? A lot of different people, policymaker, academics, company managements, investors are asking, will people shift from this sort of uber focus on return on capital back to growth? And then the related question is, if the sector is at a big discounted valuation, when does it ever catch up? When does it close the gap with what looks like a very inexpensive valuation versus the market? And as I wrote about last week, I actually kind of reject the premise of the basic question being asked. There is not a trade-off between returns and growth. It is always and only about profitability. That's why companies exist. Uh, I think the question is, how do you extend the period by which you can generate advantage profitability? And that does require risk-taking. Oftentimes, people think of risk-taking as, quote, growth. Uh, but you're going to need to invest as a company. It's especially two of upstream companies where reserves and resources are ultimately finite. You might be able to extend them, but there's a limited amount of known reserves. Um, it's true also for downstream companies. It's true across the space. Where are the opportunities for companies to take advantage of competitively advantage opportunities for that company? Uh, it is true that sometimes companies get carried away with talking about growth and, and they get into trouble doing so, hence the sort of uber focus on returns, but it is always and only about profitability. And, and frankly, it's that same issue with confidence in the sustainability of profitability, which ironically does require risk-taking, that is then to me the key to closing what looks like a pretty big valuation gap for the sector and, and certainly individual companies. And so uh, before I get into the video, if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or audio only, there is a YouTube channel. I also publish the videos to my Substack and through the Veridin channel. Uh, and there's also a slide deck, again, if that you can download, whether you're watching the video or listening to it as well. That is certainly most easily available on my Substack and also the Veridin website. So the basic issue I've shown this graph a few times is Profitability has improved. That's the blue line on the left axis. Yet the sector, while it's up off its lows, uh, we've gone from about a 2% S&P weight up to you know almost 5%. We'll pull back here to about 4.5%. Still a wide gap. And so investors are clearly saying, we don't believe the profitability is uh, sustained, either because commodity prices are going to come down, execution is going to get worse, companies are going to lose discipline, or the business is going to go away because of energy transition, or whatever all the fears are, there is for sure a disconnect right now between belief in the sustainability of improved profitability and where stocks are trading. And that's going to be the heart of what we want to discuss this week. You can look at this on a relative PE basis. So this is S5 ENRS is the energy stocks in the S&P 500. Uh, versus the S&P. This is a relative PE graph. And I think a couple points we want to highlight. First is this history from 1991 to 2014. The sector, through all the cycles that existed in that period, which was both the lackluster period in the 1990s and then the super cycle period, the super spike period, from 2004 to 14, sector traded at about 85% of the S&P 500. So yes, it's more volatile, the profitability has actually been consistent with the broader market, and that resulted during that era of an 85% relative PE. If you want to look at just the super spike period, uh, for the full period, the sector traded at about, I think that averages specifically 78%, call it 75 to 80% of the S&P. 
And if you look, want to look at just the high return on capital period from 2003 to 2006, kind of the first part of the super spike era, maybe most analogous to where we are today, the sector traded at a little over 70% of the S&P. And where we are today, we are at 48% relative PE. So whatever historic metric you want to look at, the market is clearly saying there's something I don't believe about where we are right now. And again, let's just look at the last decade. It, it's been tough, as we've documented and said many times. Uh, the sector was not profitable, hence the blowout on the relative PE over much of 2015 to 2020. Uh, and so investors are understandably saying, hey, you've had one good year of really good profits. I'm not going to give you too much credit for it. What I will say, though, is let's look back at this history and, and, and we can see in both lackluster periods and in super cycles, um, those valuations are much, much better than where we are today, which does tell you it's not probably just the volatility we're experiencing or we experienced over the last seven years. Uh, it is some disbelief about what the future holds that is causing investors to really still stay pretty cautious on energy. I'm talking about traditional energy for the most part in general. And you can also see this in free cash yields. Here, I'm looking at just Exxon and Chevron as it's intended as the bellwether names for the sector. This is not a company-specific call in either company. And they are both at about 8% free cash yields. You can see 10-year treasuries are at you know 4.5% today, and all the popular stocks are below 4%. So again, the market's saying, for sure, some combination of sustained ability to generate returns, what have you. We don't trust you. We didn't believe you. Even these bellwether names trading at uh, much more inexpensive, in this case, free cash yields, they're cheap. Uh, versus other leading stock market companies. And so our big point, and we've highlighted this in our post really since starting Super Spiked, is I think the future is much brighter than most believe. And we spent a bunch of time on the 1.4 billion people club, the fact that there's 1 billion of us that are lucky using a disproportionately larger amount of energy than the other 7 billion people on earth. Uh, and I probably spent a little more time on the oil stats. This is true across the energy spectrum, oil, gas, other forms of energy, power generation, what have you. And we're going to need it all. We're going to need oil. We're going to need gas. We're going to need LNG, midstream, downstream infrastructure, huge area of opportunity, both in North America and other parts of the world. New energies, we've repeatedly said, if you're going to help develop the other seven-eighths, <laughs> the other seven-eighths of human population, this new energy stuff better work. Some of it better work. Now, I don't know if it's the stuff we're using today or if we're going to have to discover different technologies. It better work. And of course, power generation, especially when you think about things like compute and AI and all the growth there and some amount of electrification that will happen to areas that traditionally use fossil fuels. All of that will lead to pretty meaningful power generation growth in both mature areas, places like the U.S., uh, but of course, in the developing world for both basic needs and as they move up the economic S-curve, the world needs a lot of energy. And you can argue, when you look at structural growth, the absolute numbers may not be high. It's not like AI growing or when iPhone sales first took off or what have you. The growth rates are usually low single digit at best, but the duration of that growth is as long as anything out there. Do we think iPhones? are going to grow for 100 years? Uh, do we think MacBooks or whatever computer thing you want to name is going to grow for another 75 years? Or will something replace it? Far less true of energy. We've been using it for 100 years. We're going to be using it for at least 100 years more. There is significant structural growth in all forms of energy, uh, even if the absolute growth rates are somewhat lower than other seemingly more exciting areas.
I think 2023 has been a big wake-up call. That energy transition, uh, however you want to define it, is going to be a much longer-term endeavor than some by next decade we will have switched all to new stuff. Uh, the timeframes have always been preposterous. That's been our view. It was a motivation to create and super spiked. I think the world is waking up to the fact that this is not just Russia, Ukraine, by the way. It, it should not be blamed for the entirety of this awakening. That's been an awakening for geopolitical turmoil uh, and the importance of having healthy energy industries, and especially the US, Canada, and I would say Western Europe. But we're seeing whether it's the wind stocks blowing up, solar, what have you. It's not that the technologies won't have a comeback. It is that energy is hard. Capital intensive commodity businesses are hard. It's hard for the new stuff. It's hard for the old stuff. This stuff is going to take time. And most importantly, we still have the other 7 billion people on earth that are going to demand increasing quantities of all forms of energy. Energy transition is a sort of a, a century-long affair. It's not measured in years, let alone decades. The key is for companies, what are the profitable advantage opportunities that you can find? It's going to be different for every company. I'm going to talk about it more in a minute. But it's really about um, leaning into this significant energy demand growth that will exist and figuring out as a company or as a subsector, what have you, Here's how we're going to play in it. Here's where we can be lower on the cost curve. Here are things that others are missing. Here's how we're going to be countercyclical. There's no one size fits all. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, examples are, again, I go back to Tosco in the 90s, buying old refineries at pennies on the dollar, a great strategy. I think of a company like XTO Energy buying what people thought were forgotten uh, domestic oil and gas assets that kind of preceded the shale revolution. And we went from an acquire and exploit strategy to being a leading shale gas producer uh, to you know old Exxon under Lee Raymond and doing big global projects, restructuring uh, and that kind of stuff. There is absolutely no one size fits all. We're going to need a wide range of different companies and opportunities. So in terms of reattracting investors, the key to me has always been you want to generate top tier returns on capital. Sector overall, over 100 years, is going to be a cost of capital business. Not true of your first and second quartile companies. I'm going to use that median line, kind of the worst company in the first quartile, the best company in the second quartile, median between first and second. That is the goal. Um, but it requires continuous portfolio progress. You can't just sit on an asset base. That That's that's finite. You're trying to be a going concern. Um, many different opportunities that one can do to take risk, M&A, exploration. You can be global. You can do new energies. You can do infrastructure, which could be midstream, downstream. It's across the spectrum. It is the job of management teams, investors, and companies to figure out how are they going to take advantage of whatever their opportunity set is. There's, of course, a need to avoid the quadrilateral of death. Uh, we spent a lot of time in last week's post going through it. It's the basic idea that you fall too much in love with a specific area, you overinvest, you perhaps have execution risk, and then the macro ultimately goes against you. There's a need to take risk. There is no need to become uber in love with growth in and of itself or to believe that permeable markets ever exist. They do not. I might believe that energy demand is going to grow for another 100 years. Uh, including almost all forms of energy, that is not the same thing as saying we will always be in a bullish commodity price environment. That is going to be cyclical for sure, driven by CapEx cycles, driven by recessions or economic expansions, what have you. And it's important to understand that. How do you continue to stay at the low end of the cost curve? And how as a company do you ensure that you are profitable 
or worst break even depending on the depths of a downturn, but to plan for those inevitable down cycles? How do you ensure whatever your area of advantage risk taking is that you're resilient in the down portions of the cycle? And the final point I'd make is there isn't a rush ever to take risk. Liquidate while you wait. It's going to be the phrase we're going to use. We used to call it shrink to grow, but that had more the connotation of a restructuring. And frankly, with traditional energy, there really isn't restructuring opportunities in most of the companies. And most companies have kind of done that over the last decade or so. It, it really is about deciding, do I have an opportunity set or something advantage today? And if I don't, it is completely okay to shrink and pay out dividends. Uh, that may not be what you want to do. It's probably not going to get you multiple expansion, but it may be the right thing to do. And the worst thing companies can do uh, is actually obviously make mistakes and 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 that might happen from time to time, but there is a need to be patient sometimes is, is the point. So sustained top quartile returns on capital is the key. And I'm not sure if I've shown this in Super Spiked yet, but I've shown returns on capital many times. What we're doing in this graph is differentiating between that median first, second quartile company, which is the green line, green is good, versus the average line, which is this bluish purple line, versus the bottom half, the median third quarter, fourth quarter company, which is red. And a couple observations. Again, the blue line is going to average a cost of capital over 30, 50, 100 years. What I love about the top quartile companies, even during the lackluster period, they generated almost 15% returns on capital. And during the super cycle, they approached 20%. And again, this covers the full super cycle period, including the period that turned out to be not so good. It has only been, and, and, and it's a big only, but it has only been in the last five years that even the first quartile companies struggled. And we probably will follow up in a super in, in a follow-on post about that. Notice the, the bad companies. Um, even during the good times, they were never that good. Um, so for sure. All, you can always quartile these companies. Uh, absolutely, we're trying to avoid the bottom quartile. We've put in here the 12% return on capital line as the threshold to being a good company. Uh, and it's, it's, it's an important point. M many companies think of their cost of capital as being 8 or 10%. That might be true. But in terms of the profitability objective, you're going for double digits and you're probably, frankly, going for mid-teens. And the irony is, if you hold yourself to that type of standard, which again is through the ups and downs, not just during the bullish periods, your cost of capital probably does come down to something below 8%. If you can generate good returns on capital, your cost of capital will be better. By holding yourself to a higher discount rate, if you will, or a, a more stringent full cycle return analysis, you are increasing the odds that you end up in this good quadrant uh, that over 20 years, both average times and good times, you're going to be on the right side of that 12% return on capital threshold. And that's that's what we're looking for. How do you extend your asset base? What are the risks you should be taking, whether it's M&A, whether it's exploration, whether it's business development, what have you, to ensure you maintain or get into that top tier status? The final points I just want to make are really the table stakes that get a lot of attention today, but I think are somewhat overstated uh, in terms of their relevance. And the first is dividend and stock buyback policy. And I'm going to Address this from the perspective of companies with, excuse me, volatile earnings streams. So think of an upstream company or a refining company. These comments probably do not apply to MLPs or the midstream, and it's going to be obvious in a second. Um, there are a lot of companies out there today, who, especially in the EMP land, who say, hey, we did these variable dividends in 2021 and 2022, and we didn't get credit. And I, I, my sense is it reflects a real misunderstanding of 
what the relevance of those dividends are, as well as timeframes. I mean, so to, like, to pay out a variable dividend for one year, uh, for the first time really ever for most of these companies, and to think that's going to convey some sustained high evaluation, I think really misunderstands the point. Um, th this was the, hey, we really screwed up a decade ago, and we're at least not going to screw up as badly this time. Th that is why investors demanded these things. But it's for the same reason. That's why you're not getting credit for it. There's nothing about those variable dividends that said, hey, I really believe in the sustainability of these companies. It was a, we promise we're not going to waste your money this time kind of payout. And I say companies did get credit. The sector valuation is up to 4.5% of the S&P, up from 2.5%. But dividends and stock buyback, they're always an outcome. They're an outcome of the investments you make. And you will get credit for dividends, whether it's regular base dividends or variable for that matter. If people believe there's sustainability to your maintaining tier one, tier two, or, or quartile one, quartile two type returns on capital. If you if people believe you have either the asset base or the ability to perpetuate reinvestments, that's when you get credit. You're not going to get credit for one-off variable dividends by definition. I, I don't understand why there's so much kind of misunderstanding or mystery about it, um, but we get a lot of lot of questions about why, why isn't there more credit for the variable? I, I don't know what kind of credit people are looking for. It's These are outcomes. It, it is about sustainability of, of the return profile that will be key to getting credit for evaluation uplift as a company. I think the second area is sort of ESG and climate. And I will say that um, I, I've, it, there's a lot of controversy around ESG. I'm, I'm not here to litigate that at this point. I, I will say I think the basic elements, governance, obviously important. Uh, I think some of the social things that companies have had issues with in the past are actually relevant. And uh, of course, companies need to care about their environmental footprint, clean air, clean water, oil spills, all the kind of you know, methane emissions, all these kind of things. What, what, what I'd say is I, I really generally don't care for the standalone ESG slides most companies have. I, I think the question really is, how is ESG just a core part of your company? And what is the message you're trying to deliver uh, in terms of your ethos going forward? Uh, I, I, I'll use an example. I think Liberty Energy, the frack uh, company, they do one of the best jobs because it's a positive message on the outlook for energy and their role in helping deliver energy. And that is their sustainability report. As they currently read, they read as, uh, we're not as evil as you think we are, and we're kind of being forced to do this, is how most of these ESG disclosures come about. I mean, it's a really important point. It's not about not caring about ESG. It's about how you convey the message. And generally not a fan of how I think most energy companies convey the message. Similar thing with the, with the climate goals. Your job as a company is to generate advantage profitability and to figure out where you're going to invest going forward. And within that, it can be about taking care of your methane emissions, ultimately going to net zero scope one or scope two. But these are all parts of running um, a successful business. I, I, I don't think they're standalone points. Um, and... I'm not a huge fan of how they're highlighted today as a, as a general comment. And the last thing is just volatility and uncertainty is going to be part of the business. That is not going away. It's always existed. It's always going to exist going forward. So we're not waiting for a calmer time. <laughs> we, we, we might prefer that like BRICS expansion was happening and there was a real robust GDP environment. There are lots of things we could wish that might happen. But volatility and uncertainty, it is part of the business. And I think there's a need to embrace it, and not wish for some different calmer time that I don't think is going to come around. So I'll end this video on a, on a personal note. And uh, 
It was actually last night. I'm recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we had our, it used to be called a retired partners dinner. They're now calling it the partner uh, alumni event uh, or what have you. And it was it, Goldman Sachs. It was a lot of fun. I, it's always great being back in the Goldman office, though I do always get heart palpitations <laughs> and, and some PTSD about being in the building and, and sort of like, I know what this means. Um, but it was great to catch up with a lot of former colleagues. And I just say this, um, you know, I in part think about my own kids who'll be out of college, you know, coming soon and all the folks looking for jobs. Like, I, it really being back at these events make me realize how fortunate I was to have a career in equity research on Wall Street. Um, and there, there are certainly more glamorous parts of a Wall Street career trading, uh, investment banking, private equity, uh, even the general asset management business. I think people think about, oh, those seem like nicer places to work. There is a fundamental training you get as a junior research analyst, especially if you work at a good firm. It could be a leading investment bank or it could be a boutique firm where as a junior research analyst, you learn to model. Uh, especially if your senior analyst is worth anything, you're gonna learn to model well. You're gonna learn to write. Uh, it's kind of shocking how much challenge there is in people being able to kind of efficiently convey a message in written form. And you learn to speak and talk. Uh, you know, marketing is absolutely part of the job. You have to convince people of your views, or at least uh, have it be such that they respect your opinion and want to have some dialogue and feedback with you. And I, there's really no other part of Wall Street where I think you get all three of those fundamental areas. When you're carving a sector, you often get, her, get to interact with the senior executives at whatever company or, or subsector or industry that you're covering. And that type of exposure as a young person to uh, the CEO or CFO, and even if it's head of investor relations or business development, these are all excellent people for you to interact with. And, and you get to be on the front lines even as a junior research analyst. And I think, you know, I look back at my career and I'm really lucky. It is totally by chance that my first job was at Petrie Parkman as a junior sell-side equity research analyst. I don't think I'd ever heard of such a job in college. Uh, and I would say it's a little bit like covering energy. It may not always be the hot sector, as we know. It's not as popular as tech ever, um, but it is critical to everything we do. Covering energy has been a total blessing. It is a global sector. It matters to every person in every industry in the world. And so does being a junior research analyst. Um, it is fundamental to um, all aspects of, I think, ultimately having success in a career, modeling, uh, written, verbal, vocal, marketing, and you get to interact with some great people. So it is a plea. It is a suggestion. It is a great career path to be a junior equity research analyst. Thank you. Thank you.